This show is a production of Migration Media. To learn more about us and see a complete list of our shows, visit migrationmedia.net. From Migration Media, this is Migratory Patterns. I'm your host, Mike Shaw. And here we are. This is part two of the season three finale. I am here with my loving wife, Elisa Rutherford-Fortunati, and we are joined by Dr. Sonia Yeager. She is a clinical psychologist and psychotherapist. She is also a digital nomad and specializes in helping fellow expats and migrants with their mental health issues, usually through remote sessions. She is a German national and does her work in German, French, and English. And Dr. Sonia Yeager, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Good morning from Germany here. (laughs) Yes, uh, this is uh, quite an exciting situation. We are doing a remote not really a session because uh, this isn't about us and our issues specifically, but in our last episode, Elisa and I talked a lot about the issues that we faced moving to Bali, um, the transition from Beijing. This is the first place we've moved to as a couple. And we wanted to bring you in to see if we could talk to you about the issues that we've faced and if we're wondering if they're common. Basically, we want to know if we're sane or if we have any problems <laughs> or if we need serious therapy. Can you help us with this? Uh, that's not exactly how I would state it, but just that, you know, I think that these are common experiences. Obviously, different people process them in different ways, but we're curious from your professional perspective, um, about the experiences that we've been having. Yeah, absolutely. I think what you know, what you were discussing and what you're saying is pretty much what most people go through. The question is always when do you go through it and um, how intense is it? So you're probably as sane as most other people. <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably also means that you need as much therapy as most other people in the world. I mean, we could all use therapy, so... You know, it's always a question of perspective, I guess. (laughs) So uh, the first thing I wanted to kind of ask you about, and I'm interested in in your experience when you speak with other migrant couples or just individuals uh, when you work with them. The separation that we felt coming out of Beijing is unusual for us. And I happen to think, well, I think both of us uh, think that this maybe stems from the fact that Beijing was such a formative place for us. You know, neither of us have that much of a pining for our respective hometowns or even really our home countries. But when we moved from Beijing, we really have felt this uh, deep separation and, and, and grief in leaving that place. And I'm wondering if you've noticed that with any other of the people that you've spoken with in your work, whether or not they have felt similar attachments to maybe their first posting or a, a place that they feel connected to maybe more so than their even even their home. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's hard to say whether it's usually the first one or, you know, it could be a different, it could be the third one that is suddenly so much more intense and meaningful for a lot of different reasons. I think in your case, what you were talking about is how much Beijing was a place where you two met and where you grew as a couple and, you know, created all of those lasting memories that are connected to that place. And probably if similar things had happened in a different city, who knows, maybe you would be grieving that city. Um, And I think it's also, I think, about the age and, you know, the phase in your life that you're in. 
when you're in a certain place. So I think sometimes it is more related to the actual place and the people that you meet. And sometimes it's more about who you are at that time in your life. But yeah, it's definitely something very common that I see with people. Um, I also think that it sometimes depends on whether it's, you know, did you choose to go because you were talking about especially postings. So when people are sent somewhere by their business or their company, and it's not that they actually wanted to go there, that can be quite a different reaction that people have. But obviously, you two really enjoyed being in Beijing, and you stayed also for a really long time, probably more so than many serial expats do. Ooh, serial expat. I like that <laughs> term. <laughs> sounds nefarious. Yeah. I, I, I recently learned that term, and I thought it really makes sense when you... I mean, I know you've talked, we've talked about this actually, Mike, when we met in person in Bali, um, how expats is such an odd term, especially if it, if we talk about people who move to Bali and just stay there for 30 years. They are not really an expat. Um, the traditional expat, even though, you know, there are cultural problems in that and privilege and whatever. In, in theory, I think the expat is someone who moves every three, few years. So it is more the serial expat you know, who moves to a new place and who is in that kind of regular transition mode. And if you stay somewhere for six years or 10 years or 20 or 30 years, that is a very different process from moving every three years. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, we, when we moved here to Bali, uh, our roles were, well, our roles weren't reversed, but when Elisa first came to Beijing, it was to pursue a relationship together. So uh, even though she was employed right away, she was kind of jumping feet first into a situation where she, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to say you weren't the instigator because <laughs> you did instigate the jump. But the when we moved to Bali, I've basically followed her. So she came to Beijing to give us a shot, I guess, in a sense, following me in quotation marks. And now I've gone to Bali to follow her. And I've had some issues trying to find my footing given that I don't have a job anymore, I've given up my career, I'm a so-called trailing spouse. And I'm wondering what you kind of hear when you speak to people who are in the similar situation that I am. Well, you are a trailing spouse, but you are a trailing spouse with a plan. <laughs> <laughs> Theoretically. <laughs> and I think that means you have an advantage compared to a lot of trailing spouses because even though, I mean, you know, you were talking about how it's been difficult for you, I think a lot of trailing spouses who don't even have an idea of like creating their own business and launching the company and having all of these plans, it can be a lot harder when, you're, when you're, you, your only identity is basically being a trailing spouse. And I don't really think that that's your case, Mike. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I yeah. I don't think so. Uh, it's funny though. I kind of like. I I feel I feel pretty good about it because I feel like I'm supporting my partner, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if that if, if I'm kind of fooling myself or if I'm justifying it to myself in some way. Even though I don't feel like I am, I'm wondering if people kind of go into that initially thinking, well, I'm going to go because I'm supporting my partner. But then when they get there, they feel lost and unmoored and maybe even resentful. Do, do you think that's something that uh, happens a lot? It's definitely something that happens a lot. And it's something that a lot of my clients struggle with when it's like, you know, you you decided to do this together and you were full on on board with being the trailing spouse and giving up your career for a while or, you know, making some sacrifices to support your family, let's say. Um, and to do this and have this amazing experience together. But then the reality kicks in at some point and you realize, well, yeah, but I'm kind of lost without my work and without all of those other things that I used to have. 
And a lot of training spouses don't have any financial issues, which then makes it even harder because that means that the family and friends back home don't really understand what your problem is. You know, what are you complaining about? You don't need to work. You have all of these amazing um, possibilities, that great house, those kids, this, you know, maybe you have, depending on where you live, you have the cleaning aid and you have the chauffeur and the, the driver and all of these other things. And that can be quite difficult for a lot of training spouses because they're not expected to work. They're expected to be the supporting partner, but maybe that's not enough for many people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes they're not even allowed to work. No, exactly. And then um, that makes it even harder. And, you know, it's like all of those regulations around um, work permits and all those kind of things. But what you've done and what you talked about, Mike, is that you started basically your own business, right? While you transitioned also to a new country and to a new way of living in your couple as being the training spouse. So you started moving to a new country, being a training spouse, plus starting your own business pretty much at the same time. Yeah, it was very much that we were both going through transitions, very different um, transitions, but we were both going through transitions and that was part of what even made the move possible is that we were both prepared to take a jump into something different. Now, of course, that means that we are on a path together, but we're having our own experiences because we chose it for different reasons. And um I think it is, like you said, it's it's not the same as a lot of um, trailing spouses, but it, there are some parallels between, uh, for me, again, like I can find my grounding easier in some ways, though there's still challenges, but easier in some ways because I have my work community. But the jump that Mike took in coming here meant that he didn't have that work community. And mm -hmm. so it, it does have some of those parallels, even though he has something that he's doing and that's productive and, you know, that feeds him in so many important ways. Um, he still doesn't have that structured community that can be so important. No, and I think that's why, I, I think what, what I notice with people who do that kind of thing is that, you know, I mean, starting your own business or becoming a freelancer or being self-employed is a huge thing in itself, even if you stay in your same country and you don't do anything and you don't change any of the other factors in your life because you suddenly have to be self-directed and structured and organize your own stuff. And as amazing that that is, it can also be really challenging and very isolated um, and very lonely. And so I think adding that to the other transitions that you've had, combining those things, while it might help to have something to do, it also means you have to do a lot of things yourself and organize yourself and structure your days. And, and for a lot of people, that's really challenging. One of the things I've noticed is that, man, my days just kind of disappear. I don't know where the time goes. Like I, I find myself doing things around the house and then I run a couple of errands. And then I, right now our situation is where I'm kind of picking up Elisa from work every day because I just, it's nice to have that as part of a routine and we get to meet up and I like riding the scooter, but, um, it's kind of weird. Like I'll look up and the time, the day is just gone. And, and it's so strange. This, this sense of time and, and sense of what you have to do every day is just so different when you're not going into an office and punching a clock and working a shift. It's just, it's really, really, I'm, 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 I'm kind of rattled sometimes by it. Well, I think that's why most self-employed people at some point start having almost like office hours and proper work days and go to a co-working space or somewhere else because 
it is really hard to organize yourself in that way. And it's very easy to get distracted by life, you know, all those small things that you want to do or should do. This also might be too too metaphysical, but I swear that Bali time is weird. Since yeah. we got here, it's just been like, you'll just do two things. And even this, even though I have a job and stuff, I'm just like, where did, wait, what happened? Why did the day, where did the day go? And, you know, it's, I'd say more so than any other place that I've ever lived in my entire life. I am shocked by the passing of time here. It, it constantly surprises me and I've never had that experience before so i think it's something about bali as well <laughs> what do you think where does it come from is it just that things work in a different way over there or i you know it's funny you mentioned that uh, i was thinking about this just today there's a certain pace of life here it's very there's a there's a laid backness to everything like just going to a convenience store everything happens very slowly um you just just you, you just kind of expect the person in front of you in line to take a long time to do something just as simple as scan one item and pay for it and uh, getting your food served to you and just just little things just make everything kind kind of extend outward. You can't drive very fast anywhere. So you don't, even if when there's no traffic, you can't go very fast because you're on a scooter and the roads are winding. So I just feel like there's a slowed down kind of quality to life here. And it just kind of makes the day like you don't get as much done in your day and you don't feel bad about it. It just kind of takes longer and it's just a different pace. And also the because we're so close to the equator, this might be something that we're not entirely used to just biologically, is that the days are pretty uniform every day. I mean, there's been no shift in light and dark, really. It's very minimal because we're so uh, just set with our our daytimes. Well, it's also really hot, right? Like, so adapting to that, you know. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. As we said in the last podcast, sweating is de the default position here. Mm -hmm. And I must say, staying hydrated is a full-time job. I mean, yeah. just constantly drinking water, multiple showers per day. It's crazy. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about community. Alisa mentioned that, how she has a work community. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of finding community for expats and migrants? I know I'm kind of struggling with it because of the particularities of the, the migrant expat scene here in Bali. Can you talk about some of the issues that you hear or that you recognize with uh, your clients in terms of being able to find community? Finding community is something that we absolutely need, obviously, right? As humans, we do need community. We, know, we do need other people. We are social beings. Some need it more than others, but in the end, we all need to feel connected. And as expats, it really depends on so many things, like where do you move, how, what kind of people are there. Um, I like to break it down in three categories of, I would say, socializing or community that we kind of need or that we want, and it's one, it's those who are far away, like keeping in touch with family back home or friends from our last place or whatever else who we have in our lives that are not where we are physically right now. And then we have the other expats that we want to meet locally where we are, and then we have the locals that we maybe also want to interact with and get to know because usually that's why we move to a new country is because we don't want to just live in our expat bubble. We would like to also meet locals and get to know the country and I think that especially in the beginning of a new move and a new transition, a lot of expats underestimate how hard it is 
to make friends. And I think in a weird way, it's actually a lot easier when you are an expat to meet new people. Because one of the things that I notice in my work is that people keep telling me, oh, I think this is so difficult because I'm an expat or because I'm a digital nomad. Like I had a conversation recently about how dating is hard as a digital nomad. And I'm sorry, but date, dating is hard no matter where you live. Dating as an adult is hard. You know, once you've passed your 20s and you've, you've become an adult, dating is really complicated. And being a digital nomad actually means that you have more flexibility, for, for example, and that you could go and meet someone and, you know, catch up with them. Or if you're an, an expert or if you're self-employed, you maybe can move to a new country for the person you've met or something like that. So often those people who live that more international life actually are more flexible and it would make it a bit easier And I do also think that it makes it easier to actually meet people because usually expats are people who are looking for other expats and who are looking for friends because they don't have that kind of like really rooted, established group of childhood friends that they live with. So if you move to a, um, to a new place that doesn't have a lot of expats, for example, it can be a lot harder. A lot of my clients um, married a local and then they move to that country. And they maybe live in a city where they're the only foreigner, almost the only foreigner. And then it can be a lot harder to grow that kind of community. And maybe you get communities through your partner, but it's not your friends, you know, in the same way. And so I often find that, for example, um, clients who move to an English-speaking country where they thought it would be a lot easier because you can communicate with the locals, you know, maybe you are someone from the UK who moved to New Zealand, um, It's quite similar on the surface. It should be easy. But in the end, most um, Kiwis probably have their group of friends and they're not that interested in meeting new people. So it can be a lot harder when you move to somewhere that is not a typical expat place. If you move to some to somewhere that's more a typical expat community, I don't know, move to Singapore, for example, there are so many expats over there. But then it can be hard to meet anyone who's not an expat because it's a very much you're living in that kind of bubble system and i think what you talked about bali is just a really really weird place in many ways you know it's full of tourists it's full of backpackers it's full of healthy yoga um digital nomads um whatever <laughs> <laughs> and obviously there are i'm sure there are lots and i've met some really nice people in bali myself but it is harder to meet those who are really staying and who are really interested because most people are just well those who are staying will usually be just like, I'm not interested in having another where you're from, how long are you staying conversation. So how do you actually meet those people who are interested in deeper conversations? And as I said, I mean, you have to, you know, it's like dating. It's not that easy to find good friends. It might be easier to meet someone that you can spend a day with and do something together, but to actually have to build friendships and real community and connections can be a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know for myself, and obviously we talked about this in the last episode, it's been a little bit difficult for me. And one of the things I've noticed is that Bali, because of its geography, the fact that it is so kind of spread out and uh, just the transportation network is not very good. There's uh, very little in the way, actually, I shouldn't say there's very little, there is no public transportation. So there, and, and, This, the way the geography works means there's no kind of natural gathering points for, yeah. for foreigners. There's no expat district. There's no foreigner district. Like my experiences in China, 
And in Beijing, when, at least when I first moved there, there was definitely kind of one or two pockets where all the expats gathered, all the foreigners gathered. And I happened to live there. And it's a little more diffuse now, but still, it, kind of one quadrant of the city is where you're going to find most of the foreigners. And that's kind of the same in, in most of the cities in China where there are expats. Um, but here, there's just no, there's not, there's none of that. Expats are everywhere, and sometimes you can't tell the expats from the vacationers. So it's really kind of you see foreign faces everywhere, but you don't know who is who. It's a, it's really very, very, very strange. Um, one of the things that um, I'm kind of curious about, and uh, this is not, uh, this is not Freudian in any way, <laughs> but I'm just kind of curious uh, about married couples who travel overseas together, whether they've married overseas or they started out as, as couples and then moved overseas. Do you find in your work that there are more problems with them than couples in their native countries? Do you find it's the same level of issues and it's just a different type of, of problem that, that couples go through? What's your experience in that area? 95% of my clients have relationship issues, but not all of them are expats. Um, you know, I mean, most people have <clears throat> have issues in their relationships. I, yeah. It's not, it sounds to me, it, I mean, my assumption would be, and this is, this is just the layperson's assumption, is that everyone in a relationship is going to have problems. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the nature of being in a relationship is you are trying to create a single unit between two distinct individuals and there will always be conflict and give and take and constant negotiation. And if someone is, if, if the couple are expats, then it's going to be the same thing. They're just going to have different issues that couples who are in one country maybe just don't have to deal with. Well, as an expat couple, you also have a lot of different types of things that you have to navigate, right? And you have, you know, what kind of brings people together is having a common enemy sometimes. And I think that's something that expats have a lot because you have all of these, like this weird world around you that you have to try to understand. And while it can be really frustrating, it can also be something where you really grow together because you manage those things together and you support each other and you try to figure it out and you're frustrated, you know, both are the same things. And, um, and that can be really something that brings people together. So I think that can be really an advantage of the expat lifestyle because you are trying to, you know, navigate this foreign country together and that's often really builds relationships. Where I see the problem is that if there are serious issues in an expat couple, it is a lot harder to deal with those things because the consequences are just so huge compared to, you know, a breakup is always terrible. But a breakup in a foreign country or a divorce in a foreign country, maybe even with children involved, like expert divorce is one of those huge topics that the world hasn't solved yet. And that really is a huge issue, especially if you have you know children involved. But even just if you have one partner supporting the other one financially, what happens when you separate? Who gets to stay in the apartment? Do you owe the other person, like especially if you're not legally married, um, what do you owe the other person? How do you handle those things? And if you are in a maybe more expensive city and country, you can't just say, well, I'm going to go to a hotel or to an Airbnb for a few weeks until we figure this out. I can't, you can't just go to your sisters or your uncles or your, you know, your best friend's place while you're figuring out those issues. And I think that's where a lot of expert couples struggle because you have this, well, we can't separate or we can't, you know, have issues because if we have issues, then this is the end of the world. We won't survive this. I won't survive this. And then that's, 
sometimes puts a lot of pressure on those couples, which then make it a lot harder to actually work on those issues because you always feel like, no, this just can't happen because then it's the end of the world. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, actually, we I think we had a conversation about this, Lisa, you and I, back, maybe it was right after we got married, or maybe it was right before we left Beijing, I can't remember, but I know it came up at one point where we were just kind of thinking idly, like, well, what happens if we need to get divorced or something, maybe yeah. just for tax reasons or for whatever? <laughs> I mean, for, for, forget the relationship part. I mean, just for practical reasons, maybe because, oh, I think you said something that had to do with uh, work visas and being able to, because you never know, because if you get a spousal visa into one country, you're not allowed to work. But if you go in as not a spouse, you can get a, a work visa, perhaps, um, or maybe something like... Um, uh, there's all sorts of situations, but for whatever reason, if we wanted to get divorced, I think we have to go to Beijing. We have to go back to China. Yeah, that's what we were trying to figure out. And we had actually talked about, you know, uh, if we adopted kids, like how would that work from moving to country to country? What kind of paperwork would we need? And if, you know, if we were to, you know, separate or get divorced at some point, what would that mean in terms of our kids? And since I'm a teacher, I have seen that happen with the kids in my classes. I have seen families break up and you end up with one kid in one country and one kid in another. And, you know, it, it is, it's incredibly complicated. And for us, you know, we kind of are at that place where it's like, we're, we're not afraid to talk about any of those things, but I, I wonder how many people actually have those conversations, you know, because obviously you're working towards the, the best outcome and you want to be the best partners. But when you are in a situation where you're outside of your home country and that separation is a big, big deal, then yeah, it's uh, challenging. Well, it is a huge deal, and I see it in a lot of my clients who only come to counseling once it's already really bad. <laughs> you know, most people don't come at the beginning of the, the issue. And I've had clients who's, who are obviously, very obviously, in a relationship that's really, really bad for them, but they say they can't leave or they will lose the kids. And and that's how it is. They they talk to a lawyer, and that's how it is. And, and you know, those are things that are so complicated and so hard to, to handle, but then obviously we also have the the smaller stuff, like how do you live a relationship when you're an expat couple? How do you live um, as a digital nomad? I, When I'm traveling with my partner, we're together 24-7 pretty much. Those are all types of relationships that are so different from the very traditional relationship that most people live where both go to work. You know, I think that's how it is now in most developed countries. Both partners go to work and come back in the evening and um, spend maybe the weekends together. But as an expert couple, depending on how you work and what you do, you can have a lot of very different variations on this. And what a lot of my clients then struggle with is that it is this typical, like, how it used to be, you know, the, the wife at home and mother or the maybe the male trading spouse, but one of them will do a lot more at home while the other one is working. And then how do you feel like, do you feel that this is an... Um, equal marriage kind of thing do you really feel like you're sharing the responsibility or is it really one person who has to manage everything at home while the other one is maybe earning the living for the family and that brings up a lot of really interesting conversations and way too many way too many couples just don't talk about it and I think that's really the main issue 
Yeah, I like to think of it as kind of like the Olympics. There's a level of difficulty <laughs> in the event, so so there's always there's always there's always issues with marriage. But when you do it overseas, it just adds a level of difficulty. <laughs> so we should get more points for being married overseas. <laughs> it is true, but I think it, in some ways it also removes some of the difficulties aspect because you get to create your environment pretty much yourself, right? You don't have your your families, your in-laws, your you know, your ex-partner living in the same city. You don't have all of these other people who might interfere with a relationship otherwise. And I find that often expat couples are those who are striving are striving because they get to create the, the, the relationship and the life that they really want to live. Whereas those who are sometimes living back home have all of these other people who are trying to um to have their say in this whole thing. Um and that often makes it more complicated, actually. No, that makes sense. Uh, I, I definitely get that. And I, and I think that that is definitely something we've felt in, like, that we are partners, you know, and... Um, partners in crime. <laughs> and while we're on our own individual paths, we are very much, um, you know, this, this system of support and... Um, championship for each other and uh, and like you said like we have a lot of option in the world that we create around us which was actually part of what was particularly interesting about this move to bali is that you know the world you create around you is in the people but it's also sometimes in the material things and it took so long for our items to get here that we actually had a hard time creating the world around us in the way that we wanted to which added to that to that complicatedness but in general yes it's very much you do get the chance to uh kind of have what you want to have as close as you want to have it depending upon the flexibility you have in moving different places and uh it, it kind of i think it depends on how much of of what you want to surround yourself you're able to with but yes that that makes sense that in some ways it's more challenging in other ways it's it's a lot less challenging and I think one thing that where it becomes really challenging is that for a lot of um, people who do this expert life as a couple is that you can't imagine doing it alone. Like it's so tied together, the expert life and the, the relationship. And while that is great because you support each other and you help each other and you have all of that, it also puts a lot of pressure on the relationship and on the lifestyle. Um, and a lot of my clients actually are single expats, which is really interesting because what they come with is the question of, okay, I've been doing this for a while. I'm really, you know, I'm more or less good at this. I know how to navigate foreign countries. I've got my job, but will I ever meet a partner that I can share this life with? Or do I have to maybe go back, whatever that means, because that's the only way I can meet someone. And how do you find someone who's willing to, to be flexible and willing to try new things and, um, yeah, maybe support each other, support each other in the way you're doing it. I have actually known people who went back to their home country with the like the express desire of finding a partner and then bringing them back abroad with them. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know any who who were successful in that? Yes. Yes, actually. <laughs> Ooh, we'll have to do it. I, I need to get them on the podcast. I want to learn all about that. 
I, I think that more people try and make those connections where they're living. But yeah, I have known people who explicitly went home to make that connection and then brought their partners abroad. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Yeager, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but it, to kind of wrap up here, can you talk a little bit about uh, the work you do in a general sense? And, and I guess what I mean is, you know, you are a digital nomad and you find yourself working with fellow digital nomads and expats and migrants. Can you talk about what drew you to that work uh, and wh- what kind of, um, I don't want to say how easy it is because it's work is hard. It's supposed to be hard, but you know, how, how easy is it for people to find resources like you out there? Because we all need mental health, uh, help sometimes, but we always don't know how to find them. Do you, do you find a need that's unmet out there? And, uh, do you feel like you're, there are enough people trying to meet that need? Yeah. Let me start with that last question. I think it's really funny because when I talk to people like you who ask me about, you know, those kind of questions or digital nomads recently at a conference asking what, Oh, how do I find a therapist who understands this lifestyle? And I do get a lot of those questions of how, how hard it might be to find someone who understands this and who is familiar with that. And then on the other hand, we have an, a community of like at the moment, I don't know, four or 500 location independent therapists or therapists interested in being location independent. And to say, how do I find those clients? How can I market to those international people? I want to work. I'm a qualified therapist. I'm familiar with this lifestyle, but it's really hard to market to people all over the world. And how do I do that? So I actually think that it's really more about finding the right people. It's not that they aren't there in both in both ways. Um, the clients ready to talk to a therapist are there and the therapist work, ready to work with those clients are there too. Sometimes there are legal things to navigate that can be a bit tricky when we work across borders and time zones and countries and all of those things. But there are lots of us doing it. And um, one of the things that you asked about and that I find interesting is that as a digital nomad, for example, I don't have that kind of attachment to my physical surrounding in terms of having my stuff. Um, And so I don't have to wait for a container to come. I have my backpack and I have my, you know, 14 kilos of backpack and then another three of electronics and office supplies. And that's all I have. Um, And a few winter things strategically all over the world in places that I go back to once in a while. But I, I found as a digital nomad, you have to create that sense of home more within yourself, right? You have to be comfortable wherever you are. And yes, you can have a little candle and a little something that makes it a little bit, you know, more yours. But in the end, it's about finding that kind of thing without within yourself and that sense of home within yourself. And also not just within your couple, as amazing that is. A lot of people really rely on like my home is where my partner is and that's great. But what if your partner isn't there anymore? What happens then? Um, so I think we all need to work more on this, finding it within ourselves and just, you know, feeling at home within ourselves. Um, and so that's a lot what I work with on my, with my clients on. And my clients are not only experts and digital nomads, what one of the main topics that I work with is uh, multicultural couples and um, people in general. So I grew up with two cultures. I think you mentioned that I have a German nationality. I also also have the French nationality. So I grew up with two two languages, two cultures, 
from the beginning. And I always lived in Germany until I was, you know, in my late, well, actually early 30s. I moved a few times within Germany, but I went to a French school. So I was very much in that French and German and intercultural environment. And then I studied in Germany and I did my psychotherapy training and my PhD. And then I went to travel the world for a year and decided to never come back, or at least to not come back permanently again. And I find it fascinating to work in that international intercultural space and how do you, like my own relationship, I I talk to my partner mostly in English. Um, So that's my third language. How right now I'm... I'm visiting home, one of my many homes. I'm visiting friends and family in Germany. And I'm realizing how relaxing it is to be surrounded by a language that I fully understand. I don't have to think about it. Um, how easy it is that I can go to the supermarket and I know what's in there, even though they've you know changed a few things. But I just, I don't have to go through the whole supermarket to know whether I can cook what I want to cook. Because I know that all of the items I'm thinking of will be there. And all of those little things make life a lot easier when I'm back in a place that I'm really familiar with. But then I'm also really interested in going to see new places. And so I travel a lot. I'm one of those digital nomads who usually goes to eight, 10 countries a year. I try to alternate between new countries and old countries that I'm familiar with. I've spent a few months in Japan and went to Taiwan and South Korea this year and I went to Bali too, but that was more of an accident. Um, And and yeah, so I do travel a lot. But my clients, some of them travel too, travel a lot. And so I have traveled with my clients, you know, while we both change time zones and we have to navigate that. But then also work with a lot of expats who, for them, it's often that question of who am I? How much am I still the person I used to be? How much have I changed because I'm living in a new country? Do I want to go back? Do I need to go to a new place? How can I find a sense of identity and of home where I am? And then obviously there's a lot of like, you know, anxiety and depression and self-esteem issues and all of those other topics that most people struggle, a lot of people struggle with at some point in their lives. Wow. Yeah. You're, I, I would love to talk to more with you about the whole inter or cross-cultural couple thing. I, I'm sorry, we're just a boring monoculture relationship. <laughs> I, I almost feel bad for wasting your time on us. <laughs> and we're not that interesting. No, but I was going to, <laughs> I was, I was going to ask to, to add earlier that at least one of the things that are easier for you is that it is your language and it is, you, you are from the same roughly the same culture you know you might be from different parts of the country but um you have a you have a similar cultural background and that will make life a lot easier in many ways because you have the same cultural references and you have the same things that you can identify with um but obviously that's not the case for many expat couples that's true and then the question is, if you have kids, then what languages do the kids speak and how, what, cult, what cultural things do you want to, tr- um, to transmit to them and how do you navigate all of that? It can get really, really complicated. Yeah, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to have another conversation with you. Maybe I can find a a, a cross cultural couple that I can come on and use guinea pigs. We can have them on and we can talk about these issues a lot more because it, we could do hours just on that. But um, Dr. Sonia Yeager, I want to thank you so much for coming on, taking time out of your day to talk to us, to let us know that we're okay and that we're gonna be okay. <laughs> I feel safe. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> exactly, you do. 
you're doing fine. Just keep doing what you're doing. Just keep talking about it. And did you hear that, honey? A professional said we're doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> then a serious note. I mean, we all have things that we struggle with, right? The question is, what do we do when that happens? Do we give up or do we face it? And do we try to find a way out? And um, and when things get hard, you know, we have to adapt and try to figure it out. And but it's also good to cut ourselves some slack and just to see how we can um, adapt and, and handle it. And obviously if, you know, if it goes on for months and months and you feel like it's just not working and no matter what I do, it's not getting better, then obviously at some point it might be time to get some professional help. But most people who move to a new country at some point will have that kind of culture shock and adaptation process that is really, really hard. And it's not going to be easier if you're you know, annoyed at yourself for not making it work faster. This is a, yeah, this is a big part of the reason that a couple months ago when uh, Mike met you, I said, oh, you know, it'd be really interesting if we spoke with uh, her about the experiences of expat couples and about transitioning to a new country and things like that. Because I think too, um, like you said, I I think we're doing great. (laughs) Um, But I think it's also really good for there to be an open conversation that these things are challenging at times. Again, there are certain aspects that uh, make it easier, but there are aspects that make it challenging. And having those open, honest conversations is so incredibly important. Um, I'm sure you would agree in general with mental health that so often there's a lot of cultures that stigmatize um, seeking help and stigmatize um, that if you're speaking with a professional that there's something really deep and wrong and some larger issue. But um, I think part of the reason that I personally wanted to do this is that um, there are a lot of amazing people out there who do understand the experiences that you're having. And if you are, you know, an international migrant or in, you know, um, multicultural, multilingual, family, you know, there's nothing wrong with speaking with somebody um, that understands those experiences and can help you navigate it. Yeah. If anyone listening to this podcast, if you're finding yourself in a situation, you need to help, Dr. Sony Yeager <laughs> is available. And uh, we're going to have links to the, we're going to have links to to your website and all your contact information so that anyone can reach out. But I would just encourage everyone if you are having trouble and you feel like you need a little help, just reach out, look around. You'll find people out there. Do a Google search. Um, there is help available and there's nothing wrong with it. Everyone needs a little help every now and again. And know that there are multiple um, multiple different perspectives on mental health care, care professionals and mental health in different countries. So um, depending upon your background, you may want to seek within your own culture, you may want to seek outside your own culture, you may want to find somebody that's local, you may want to find somebody who's digital, um, that, you know, there's a lot of different options and there's a lot of different perspectives out there. So, you know, do do some work to find um, the professionals that work for you. Dr. Yeager, thank you again for coming on and taking the time with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. This has been a Migration Media production. To learn more about the lives of international migrants and see our lineup of shows, visit us at migrationmedia.net or look for us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.